We're going to come to a time now of reading God's Word. So if you have a Bible on your phone, open it up to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Reading from verse 1 to verse 11. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and uh, provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Uh, well, welcome to the meetings. If I can echo uh, Declan's warm welcome, uh, particularly if uh, this is your first time and you've just joined us at a public, an EU public meeting, maybe you're brought by a friend or maybe you just sort of walked in and saw one of the adwords and walked off the street, in which case a warm welcome to you. If you've been regularly coming to public meetings or maybe you weren't here yesterday because of the strike, uh, then glad that you've decided to come to Thursday public meeting. And uh, today we're spending uh, this weekend, well this week and next week, we're looking at this topic of desire as we uh, work through our series this year on identity. So I thought that uh, if you've got that passage in Ecclesiastes open in front of you, just leave it open on your phone, don't get too distracted by Facebook, that would be very helpful, uh, or share with the person next to you, oh actually I'll tell you, I'll bring it back up on the screen, so it's there. I wanted to um, start by asking a couple of questions about this idea of desire, why is it that some of the things that we desire bring us great joy and happiness, and yet at the same time some of the other things that we desire, or maybe even sometimes those things that do bring us joy and happiness, also bring us some grief and cause us difficulty. Why is it that some desires obviously bring us good outcomes, yet as we pursue other desires, we don't always get the outcome that we're hoping for or expecting? What is it about our desires that means that we invest a lot of time in chasing after them? Sometimes we do it consciously. We make deliberate, considered decisions that we will invest time or money or emotional resources into chasing after our desires. Sometimes we just do it subconsciously by just that sort of continual upgrade of technology, which will often always come with some sort of financial cost. Why is it that we seek to fulfill our desires and longings? Have we ever stopped to ponder this question? I hope that today as we reflect on this passage, 
And then as you come back next week, we'll be able to answer some of these from the Christian scriptures. To do this, I wanted to spend some time looking at Solomon, arguably one of the wisest people around, uh, to see how he responds after chasing one particular desire. And in this case, in chapter 2, it's the desire of pleasure. So what does Solomon say? Well, notice what he says there. He seeks after pleasure. Now, in this particular case, he's trying to determine whether or not he can be fulfilled by desiring pleasure and actually experiencing pleasure. Not just sort of philosophically wondering whether or not it's possible, but actually and actively pursuing it. And so if you pick up in the passage, he commits some significant resources to doing it. We're not told exactly how long he commits to doing it for. It may have been that this passage was written as a sort of a reflection on his life. And in some senses, what we read here is a bit about all of the things that Solomon did in his life to try and find pleasure. Or it may have been that he committed a particular aspect of life to try and fulfill the desire for pleasure. But either way, what we do see is he commits significant time, significant effort, and to some extent, some significant sort of mental resource. He applies his mind to seeing how he will fulfill the desire of pleasure. Are we not like Solomon at this point? Do we not get a bit of resonance with Solomon to the extent that we go, actually, you know what, I'm a bit like Solomon at that point. I too often commit some of my resources, be that material or emotional or maybe even spiritual and definitely financial, to try and fulfill these desires. Some would say arguably that pleasure is one of the strongest desires and to some extent probably the most satisfying if it can be genuinely fulfilled. Now in case you're wondering whether or not we actually do this, if you pause for a minute and consider say the just entertainment industry, which arguably one of its aims is to entertain us, to actually to give us pleasure. I'm thinking broadly the entertainment industry, not particularly the adult entertainment industry, just broadly the entertainment industry. The global entertainment industry turns over several trillion dollars. Just consider that. Several trillion dollars a year. And you might say, well, there's lots of billion people in the world. And yes, but if you just pause back and think about over your spending patterns in the last week or month or this year, how much money would you have spent on personal entertainment? Movies, Netflix subscription, what else have you spent it on? See, one of the things where I think we are like Solomon is we do seek after the things that entertain us and give us pleasure. And what's the tangible outcome of this? What's the tangible outcome of binge watching a season on Netflix? A tangible outcome. Well, for me, if I binge watch a season of something, the lawn is still unmowed. <laughs> a load of washing is still in the machine, not out on the clothesline. The room is actually just as messy as it was when I sat down to watch Netflix. What's the tangible outcome? And you'll say, no, no, the tangible outcome is you've been entertained. <laughs> yeah, what's the tangible outcome? Now, I'm not saying that entertainment is a wrong thing. I'm just saying it's actually true of our own experience that we often pursue entertainment and pleasure. Desiring things, I want to suggest, is part of what it means to be human, actually. It's neither a good or a bad thing. Let's not think of it in terms of those categories. The desires that we have and the way in which we live them out may be morally good or bad, may be functionally helpful or unhelpful. We'll come to that conversation a little bit later on today and next week. But I want to suggest to you that desiring things, I think, is just part of what it means to be human. 
People have different types of desires for all sorts of different things. That we exhibit desire is partly who we are. It's the way in which we experience and express them that shows us, in a sense, what type of human we are. I want to suggest to you that the reason why we seek to fulfil our desires is because often we're seeking what most people seek in varying forms and to varying extents. We're seeking some really deep things about what it means to be human. We're seeking acceptance. We're seeking satisfaction, which often comes if you search after, to fulfil the desire of pleasure. We're searching after security. We're searching after meaning and purpose. Now, the way in which we seek to reach for these things and acquire them is often through expressing them tangibly through the desires that we have. So how then do we seek to fulfil these particular desires? Well, depending on the nature of the desire, we obviously do it a little bit differently. How does Solomon do it as he searches after one particular desire, and that is the desire of pleasure? Uh, notice what he says in verse 10. Down there in verse 10. He says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. Let's ponder that for a minute. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Everything he desires, he pursues. He doesn't refuse himself anything. Could you but for a moment imagine what that might have been like? Now, I, I follow some of you on Facebook, and uh, <laughs> I could go anywhere now, couldn't I? <laughs> what I was going to say was, I'm not really on Instagram. Uh, and some of you may be on rich kids of Instagram, but probably not, uh, because you're still at university trying to get a degree to get a job to make lots of money. But it's interesting that uh, if you sort of take a snapshot of some of the rich kids of Instagram, you almost get the impression that when they wake up in the morning, they pretty much do this. They deny themselves nothing, and they pretty much refuse their heart no pleasure. Partly because they've got the financial means to probably be able to do it. And I take it that Solomon's in that same case. Solomon basically had the means and the opportunity, given his wealth, but also given his position, to deny himself nothing his eyes desires, nor refuse himself any pleasure. But before we think that Solomon may have been a bit of a rat bag because whatever he saw he just took, and maybe what about all those perhaps unhelpful desires if he didn't refuse himself that, does that mean that he acted, maybe acted corruptly? Well, let's see what verse 3 and verse 9 tell us. So if you've got verse 3, I'll have to flip between two slides here. Notice what he says here. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. Notice what he says also in verse 9. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Notice the constraint that he places around himself in pursuing everything his eye desires. He's actually driven and governed by wisdom. So I take it in these things that he's not acting rashly just because he sees, for example, another man's wife, he says, I will have pleasure with her. No, actually, he's acting from a position of being wise and from that, not denying himself any legitimate or consistent pleasure with what it means to be wise. 
So the first thing we see here in Solomon in trying to take up these desires is he does act with some wisdom. And I take it then, some constraint. Notice what he does. He turns to wine for enjoyment. He seeks to increase his achievements in verse 4 by building houses and gardens and aquifers. Verses 7 and 8, what does he do? He brings slaves. He owns herds and flocks more than anyone else. He amasses silver and gold. He does all of these things. Why? In the hope that his desire for pleasure will be fulfilled. At the end point, verse 9, notice what he does. He becomes great and surpasses all who were before me. If anything, this is the guy that you would say, surely he's been able to maximally fulfill the desire of pleasure. Now, I suspect at this point some of us would really like to be like Solomon. I think for some of us we'd like the means and the opportunities and we'll happily say, and also within the constraint of wisdom, to actually try and be like Solomon, wouldn't we? And in some senses, one of the things that you do when you're at university is you set yourself up for greater opportunity to do these things. The degree legitimizes the occupation that you have. The fact that it's from Sydney Uni probably gives you a foot up on some of those who have gone to other universities. You know that to be true, even though you might not want to admit it. And I take that's one of the reasons why you worked hard to get to Sydney University not another particular university. But notice what it does. It creates potential for you to more maximally, using whatever resources become at your disposal, to in some senses try and become like Solomon. Will you become like Solomon in that you will become greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem or in Sydney before you? I don't know. Probably not. Good dose of realism there. But you might. You might become extremely wealthy, extravagantly wealthy. You might be able to almost not refuse anything your eye desires. I think in some senses we actually do want to be like Solomon a little bit. When we're honest with ourselves, we do want to gain more than we've got. We do want more pleasures than we're currently experiencing. We don't really want to deny ourselves anything our eye sees. So the question we now turn to is, so what's so wrong about fulfilling our desires? If being human means we have desires, then what's so wrong with fulfilling them? What is wrong with trying to gain more of the world? I suggest that it's part of being human not only to have desires, but also the reality of our lived experience that for many of us, we will spend time working out how to make sense of those desires and then how to work out how to satisfy them. And so as our situation in life changes, so do our desires and the manner in which we satisfy them. Now at this point, it's, I think also fair to say that society, for various reasons, in the currents of society, encourages people to chase after their desires and seek to satisfy them. Just look at the advertising industry. Any of your parents work in advertising? Good on them. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create in me a desire so that I will seek to pursue that particular product because it's been demonstrated that it will do something valuable for me. Functionally, emotionally, relationally. But there's a couple of broad lines of thought that I think society is running. Firstly, that we feel desires means that we should follow them. That we feel desires means that we should follow them. In fact, I think if you watch carefully and read what's going on in society, 
it could probably be said by many that we are truly human when we follow the desires we feel. So if we repress desires we're feeling, we're not actually expressing our true humanity. I suspect you've probably had experiences of that. If you're a Christian person, you may have had some desires that you think are actually contrary to what God, how God would have you act, and yet society seems to say, no, no, act on those desires. They're right because you feel them. That's the first sort of line of thought. I think the second line of thought that comes into play here is that society says that the thinking is that as long as my actions are not doing harm to anybody else, then the outworking of my desires is justified. So how do I determine whether an action upon a desire is right or wrong? As long as it doesn't do harm to anybody, go for it. Now in some senses, both of these lines of thought are a development and an outworking of what you would call self-determinism. That is, broadly speaking, the notion that the self, you and I, we are autonomous. And that we can determine, based on our feelings, ultimately, what course of action we should take in life. To some extent, it can be said that the greater the self-determinism, the more you just act on the desires and seek to not do harm, the more autonomous you become as an individual, the more truly human you would become, so says society. So I think you only have to stop and pause and think about those two positions, give it some consideration, and I think we should be able to see that if the sole and final arbitrator of our desires, and whether or not they do harm, rest only with me or you as the individual, then I think we're going to have some difficulties, particularly as we live together in the world. So if what I say is not harmful to you, but what you say is harmful to you, how then do I act? How then do you respond? And I think we see now, just in the development of some sort of public Western thought, that this is a very challenging issue at the moment. Particularly when people of differing desires, seeking to live them out, try and work out how do we live together in one society. So what did Solomon reflect about on his experience? If you've not read this passage before, or if it's been a while since you've read it, then I suspect verse 11 is the most confronting verse out of all of them. You almost expect that at the end of the narrative at verse 10, Solomon says something like, I felt genuinely fulfilled. I felt like I'd achieved everything I wanted to achieve. I felt like my pleasures had been fully satisfied. Because look at the way he's gone about doing it. But notice what Solomon says in verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And I take it here, the context of the everything being meaningless and nothing being gained is in direct fulfilment, or so we thought, of the desire of pleasure. Has he gained much? Absolutely. Look at what he's gained. He's gained herds and flocks and slaves and money. and So he's actually gained something physical. He's got a whole lot of stuff. But in terms of whether or not it's born in pleasure, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. After all of his searchings, after all of his labours, and if anyone was actually had the potential to be able to do it, surely it would have been him. 
Because if it had been you and I, we'd go, well, actually, maybe if I had got a little bit more stuff, maybe that would have made me more happy. Maybe I would have thought, well, no, actually, not even Solomon. I wonder whether or not we feel the same thing as well. Have you even now just started to feel that sense that the more you chase after the fulfillment of your desires, and maybe particularly with regard to pleasure, that as you chase after your desires and longings, you start to feel actually less fulfilled? The iPhone 10 has just been released. I'm not at all interested in getting one. I started out with Apple, always have been. Started with the iPhone 3, upgraded to the 4, Went to the five. God broke the five. The ten. I'm not at all interested. Do you know why? Because apparently what it does is it lets you make phone calls, send text messages, and browse the internet. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Because if you talk to your grandparents, they'd say, into what? <laughs> Actually, they're all over Facebook, so they know what the internet is now. <laughs> Do you know what the iPhone 10 does? It does pretty much exactly the same thing as the iPhone 3, the iPhone 4, the iPhone 5 the iPhone 6. But do you know why we think it's better? Because it's shinier, it's a bit bigger, probably a little bit faster, and it probably now will run the apps that the iPhone 4 doesn't run anymore. <laughs> Actually, I find no greater fulfillment in the upgrading technology. When I did upgrade from the 4 to the 5, I had this moment where I went, wow, this is an iPhone 5, it's faster, it's great. And after a while, that just gradually faded. It's just fun. Do you feel the same thing? I suspect we all do. I suspect that in our own lived experiences, we've gone about trying to fulfill our desires, that if we're honest, actually we will start to come to the conclusion that Solomon comes to. And can I suggest that the longer you live, probably the starker and sharper that realisation will become. Ultimately, what we find is that we can spend much of our lives chasing after the things of the world in the hope that they will fulfill our deepest desires and longings. But as life goes on, I think we realise they do less and less of that. So what are some of the things that then prevent us from achieving these desires? Well, I've suggested that the desires themselves are valid expressions of what it means to be human, but we need to be somewhat cautious as to how we interpret those desires that we have, how we actually live them out as actions. Similarly, trying to fulfil the desires when rightly understood, I think will lead to a growing recognition that this starts to become a bit of an act of futility. So what is it that prevents us from achieving our desires? For Solomon, it feels like there's nothing that prevents him from achieving his desires. It feels like because of his position and capacity, he can search after pleasure in pretty much whatever form and shape it takes. But we're not like Solomon at this point. I suspect some of the things that prevent us from achieving our desires, well, sometimes it's other people, isn't it? They get in the way. Stop preventing me from getting where I want to go. It's the job that you really thought you would get because you thought you were the best candidate. The desire for... And yet someone else gets the job. Sometimes they will get in, other people will get in the way. And other times, actually, we're the ones who prevent ourselves from fulfilling the desire. At the beginning of the year, you may have decided to, decide to reform your ways academically compared to your performances last year. How's, how's that been going for you this year? <laughs> no one else can sit the exam for you. No one else can do the study. 
at the beginning of the year went, right, this year or this semester is going to be different. I'm actually going to go to all my classes. <laughs> or at least I'll listen to all the lectures on mine. <laughs> See, sometimes we're actually the ones who prevent ourselves achieving our desires. However, I suspect probably one of the biggest things that prevents us from fulfilling our desires is that as long as we seek fulfilment in the things of the earth, just like Solomon sought to, the things that are before our eyes, then we will, like Solomon, have a growing realisation that this is futility. Because deep down, we long to be in relationships with others. We long to be accepted. We long to be satisfied. We long to feel secure. And we long to be known. And we chase after the things of the world in the hope that they will fulfil those of our deepest desires. They'll make us happy. That they'll bring us pleasure. So I say again, how's that going for you? Because I suspect there are some for whom life is pleasant and enjoyable and you genuinely feel like your desires are being met. I'm saying, yes, that's true of the human experience. I'm not denying that. I too have had those experiences. I, I get it. But I don't think it's always like this. And I suspect there'd be some in the room for whom they're doing it really tough. No matter how hard they're trying to fulfil their desires, it's just not working. And at some point, that will be true for all of us. So what's the solution? What might Jesus have to say about our desires and how they should be satisfied? Well, I want to suggest to you, firstly, that Jesus very clearly recognised the desires of the human heart. He was, after all, fully human, as the Christian scriptures attest to and would have experienced the full range of human emotions and desires that you and I experience. At the same time, he also claims to be from God, God's chosen saviour. So if that claim is true, and I suggest that it is, then he actually has something to say on this matter. Jesus himself says in Mark chapter 8, what does it profit or what does it gain? What does it profit a person to gain the world and forfeit their soul? thinking particularly about Solomon's illustration where he sought to gain much of the world. Jesus himself recognises the, the danger of chasing after the things that our eyes see in the hope that sometimes that will not only fulfil our desires but save our souls. Friends, if we chase after the things of the world in the expectation that in them we will have all of our deepest desires fulfilled, then yes, it may bring some temporary fulfilment and may bring some temporary happiness and pleasure and acceptance, but it will not fully satisfy. And the reason why it will not fully satisfy is because, friends, we have been made for more than just fulfilling the pleasures of our eyes and the desires of our heart with the things of this world. The Christian scriptures teach us that God desires that we will, as created beings made in his image, live a life that honours him that we would recognise him as Father and respond accordingly, not by doing what we desire, but actually what he desires for us. However, often we misunderstand that our desires are not always rightly orientated towards what God desires for us. And the Bible describes the presence and outworking of those natural desires that are contrary to God's a thing called sin. Notice it's not just the presence, but the presence and outworking of them. Which means they cause us to be in rebellion against what God desires for us. 
which ultimately is a rightly restored relationship between him and us. And if we're out of that relationship, then it means we will not satisfy our desires as God would want us to. So if you think that your desire for pleasure, security, acceptance will be completely fulfilled, then you will be left wanting more. And you will actually miss out on having your desires truly fulfilled if you're out of relationship with your creator God. I take it the solution on Jesus' lips in Matthew 5 where he says this, Blessed are those who thirst and hunger for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus is offering for all of those who are seeking satisfaction, not in the things of this world, but actually those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, being declared right by God in relationship with him and living accordingly. Instead of chasing after the things of the world, Jesus suggests that satisfaction comes from being in relationship with the one who made us. And he indicates that our deepest longings and desires will be fulfilled within the context of relationship. First and foremost, a relationship rightly orientated towards God in a relationship with the risen Lord Jesus. I want to suggest to you today that when we operate from within this relationship with Jesus, that actually shows that our deepest longings are relational. And that we were made to be in relationships, both actually with God and with one another. I think we know that because we strive for relationships but don't always get it right. But also operating from within this relationship with Jesus helps us rightly orientate all of our relational desires, <coughs> the emotional desires that we have within and towards other people, the sexual desires that we have, and working out how we rightly express those. Not only that, but operating from within this relationship with Jesus puts into perspective how we should understand and rightly appreciate and to some extent make the most of the things of this world rather than chasing after them, see the purpose that they have for us in the enjoyment of the creation that God has given us. And finally, I take it that when we operate from within a relationship with Jesus, it enables us to have our deepest desires of security, acceptance, pleasure, and meaning and purpose genuinely fulfilled and fully realised, both in this life and in the next. I hope today has been helpful in trying to unpack this idea of desire. Next week, love you to come back next week. We're going to spend some time looking at what it means to rightly desire God and some of the implications of that. I'm going to hand back to Declan. Ah, I've got time for questions. Look at that, it's not five quarter two. Just got in one minute ago. Anyone got any questions about anything I've said today? I'd like to push back maybe? Questions of clarification? Any other questions on Christian? Oh, oh hand. Uh, is the presence of, of ungodly desire sinful? Great question. You got your Bibles? Uh, James chapter 1. Where I'd start.
Okay, down to chapter 1. Uh, yep. From verse uh, 13. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. <laughs> Notice what James is trying to teach us here. Firstly, when you experience temptation, don't blame God. Because God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Actually, notice the source of desire. Sorry, notice where the source of temptation comes from. Uh, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And presumably the reference point there is to God. A desire arises. If I think with God's wisdom, the question is, what do I do with the desire? So I, I, I see someone else's lunch. <laughs> I'm feeling hungry. I'm tempted to reach for the lunchbox. What do I do with it? So I take it in this particular case, it's the acting out of those desires, which, notice what James says, um, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So broadly, I'd like to say it's actually the enacting of our desires when it is because of sin. However, if desires continue to be desires and you act on them but not physically but for example in your mind so if the desire to resist God's good teaching is something that continues to build in your mind and you say no I'm resistant to God's teaching I'm resistant to God's teaching and the practical works out well I'm not even going to listen to the Bible I'm not then I actually take that starts to become a sinful desire does that make sense? I have to have someone to come have a conversation with you about that later that's my initial answer to the question we're going to pray. You must watch the talk, so please bow your heads and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the book of Ecclesiastes and for the example of Solomon, that he shows us that this world does not fulfill us or our desires. Help us to see that following the things of this world will not fulfill us in the end. Help us to hear Jesus' words that we have no profit from gaining the whole world at the expense of our souls. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that we have been made for a relationship with you and that he fixes that relationship with you. Thank you that in him our deepest desires can be fulfilled. Father, help us to do what you desire for us to do, to trust you obey you and to desire righteousness. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.